only Jesus. We've been looking at that for this, this whole year, starting in John chapter 1 and ending up in John chapter 18 today. But before we get into the message this morning, you may have seen something rather interesting up here uh, this morning. Maybe you noticed that there is a bottle of ketchup up here. <clears throat> no, it's not what I'm going to drink when, I need, when I've got a cough fit coming on. Uh, and no, I'm not going to use it as a sermon illustration. But rather, what I'm using it for is a visual for a reminder for you of something that we're going to do next Sunday. And we're going to call it Ketchup Sunday. Now, um, let me explain what that means. Uh, ketchup, because we have gotten a little bit behind in our giving for this year. And we need you all to help us to catch up, all right? So we need you to help us to catch up next Sunday. Now, in the budget our size, uh, it's about uh, one Sunday that we're off. So we're about $25,000 behind in our budget. And while that sounds like a lot of money, in, the, in, in reality, in the size of our budget, it's a small percentage. But nevertheless, it's about one Sunday off. And so our staff has done a great job of not spending more than what has come in. We still would like to catch up, okay? And so next Sunday, we're asking, if you would, to maybe consider giving a little bit extra to help us catch up or marking all of your giving next week for the ministry action plan, which is the budget. Uh, and I'd truly be grateful of that. But let me just say this on the outset. Man, I am so grateful for what you all have done already this year in giving to the Lord and being faithful in your giving. And so we praise the Lord for where we are and what we've done uh, so far this year. But if you'd consider helping us to catch up next Sunday. Now let me say this. Don't come in here next week and put some uh, ketchup packets in the, in the, in the, uh, uh, the thing, all right? We don't want to do that. I know how some of y'all are. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, help us to catch up next week. All right, so we're looking at uh, the Gospel of John, thinking of only Jesus seeing the Savior in a selfie world. And every week that we've gone through the Gospel of John, we've had a different name or an idea as to who Jesus is. And today is not one that you find in the Scripture, but one that I, I see as I look at this passage. And we see Jesus as the conductor. And let me explain what I'm talking about here. Uh, and when I think about a conductor here, I'm thinking about in a symphony, an orchestra type of conductor. And then my mind goes back to when I was in uh, elementary school, probably 6th, 7th grade, somewhere around in there. We had a field trip to an uh, orchestra, a symphony I'd never been before. And we were sitting in the auditorium. And as we were sitting in the auditorium waiting for things to begin, there were people who were coming in, sitting up on the platform. And they were tuning their instruments. You know, you had the trombones, you had the the woodwinds, uh, the, you know, the clarinets and the saxophones, and you had the, the strings, the, the cellos and the violins. All these people are up there, and they're tuning their instruments, and they're getting their sounds out. And, you know, and, and me sitting as an elementary kid, you know, I have no idea what's going on. And then all of a sudden, you hear all this noise, and then you look, and, and I saw, and there was a gentleman who the door opened, and a gentleman walked out on the stage and stepped up into the platform and stepped in front of, two, in front of the, the, the orchestra, and he had a baton, a little stick, if you will, and he did this. He went tap, tap, tap. And when he went tap, 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 everything changed at that moment. Y'all been there? You know what I'm talking about? As we come to this passage of Scripture, I see Jesus as the conductor who is just now going tap, tap, tap. Because everything that has been moving and going in different directions all still planned by God, now is coming to fruition in this moment. We're going to see Jesus as he comes to what I would call 
the symphony of Gethsemane. And see that we're at the moment when Jesus is tapping the baton and everything is in its place. And we see as everything is in its place a beautiful picture of God's grace in the giving of his son Jesus Christ. And all of that is about to proceed. Amen? That's what we're seeing here in the Gospel of John chapter 18. Now, the whole chapter is what we're going to be dealing with. But I'm not going to read the whole chapter this morning. I just don't have time to read the whole chapter. I encourage you. Uh, to, to read the whole chapter this week at home. But in honor and reverence to the Word of God, would you please stand as I read for us verses 1 through 11. That gets us started into the chapter. And then we're going to touch other pieces of the Scripture uh, of this whole chapter as we move along in our passage and in the message today. So we read verses 1 through 11, John 18, and it tells us this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. And then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. And Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with him. And now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And then he asked them again, Whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. And then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. And the servant's name was Malchus. And Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given me? So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the reading of your word and for all of this chapter. As we see Jesus moving into Gethsemane. And we watch the arrest unfold. And we see all that takes place in these, these verses. And Lord, as we take a look at it from fresh eyes this morning, we pray that you would speak to our hearts and help us to get a greater understanding of just exactly what you were doing. But also, may we also see ourselves somehow in this picture. And Lord, may you convict us and challenge us and change us to be more like you as we're in awe of who you are and what you've done. Thank you, Lord, for our salvation. Thank you that you were willing to go to the cross of Calvary. Thank you that we could remember it in the Lord's Supper this morning. And we pray, Lord, that as we walk through this passage a little bit by little bit, that, Lord, you would remind us afresh and anew of the grace of God for us and who you are and the blessing it is to be called your children. Now, Lord, may the words of my mouth, meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O oh, Lord, my rock and my redeemer, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. Well, you see the outline if you picked up a bulletin today. Uh, don't be alarmed by all the little blanks. We're going to get through them, and it's not going to take as long as you think. And if you don't have the bulletin, you can pull that up on the MPBC Life app. And as we're looking at this story, as we're looking at what takes place here, we're going to see the betrayal and the arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we want to understand that Jesus' time of instruction with the disciples has come to a close prior to the resurrection. Now, think about where we have been already since John chapter 1 and all the things that we have seen 
and all the things that we've learned from the Lord and all of that he is and all that he has, has, has taught us as he was teaching uh, the disciples and abiding in him, all the things that come with that. And now we come to this place as this beautiful symphony unfolds, as we watch the grace of God begin to take place this week and next week and the week following in the giving of his son. And so what we see first off as we look at this passage of scripture is we want to see your salvation in Christ. See your salvation in Christ. We want to see what is taking place as we see that the plan of salvation, that this perfect plan that God has for lost humanity is about to take place. And so we see it as it unfolds now in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so everything, as you know, has culminated to this hour. As a matter of fact, as we come to this passage of Scripture in the Gospel of John, we are at the very crescendo of the story, not just the climax of the Gospel of John, beloved, but we're at the very climax of all of history and what is taking place here. And from Genesis at the very beginning where man disobeyed God in the garden and man's first sin to now we come to the story of redemption and we are at the apex of all of history. Everything now is in place. The conductor is stepping up to the platform and tapping the baton, tap, tap, tap. And the plan to save is happening. And one of the first things that we see here as we look at this passage of Scripture is the details have been determined. Okay? The details have been determined. So that's that first point underneath the first, see your salvation in Christ. You know, when we come to a passage like this and we come to uh, the story of Jesus and the crucifixion, the passion narrative that takes place, we often will gloss through or we'll hurry through to get right to the cross or we'll say, yeah, I know this. And we don't really think uh, clearly as to what all has taken place. And sometimes we miss the small details of the passage of Scripture. So I want us just to look at verse 1. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, remember the prayer that he had prayed leading into this passage of Scripture, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron where there was a garden which he and the disciples had entered. And remember again, that every detail has been determined. And not only every detail in this plan of salvation has been determined, but you also need to know that every detail that is written in the Word of God is there for a purpose. Amen? Everything that we see in the Word of God, there's a purpose behind the Holy Spirit inspiring the author to write the words in which he wrote. And here, there's a couple things that we see about the details having been determined that I want you to take notice of that you may have missed along the way. The first thing that we see here is the Bible tells us that Jesus, having prayed and spoken those words, went out with the disciples over the brook Kidron. Now, the brook Kidron is, is, is a place from the Kidron Valley it is a brook, sometimes it's a dry wadi, but it's mentioned first in the, book of the, in the Old Testament, in the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 15, verse 23. And in that place, we find the brook Kidron mentioned as the king at that time is David. And David is crossing over the brook Kidron, escaping away from Jerusalem as Absalom, his son, was about to strike him and to take over the rule and the reign of Israel. And now we see the Jesus crossing the brook Kidron. And here we see something different. We don't see David crossing away from Jerusalem. No, we see the son of David, Jesus, the true king, crossing the brook Kidron, headed toward Jerusalem. And he's going toward Jerusalem to fix that which is eternally broken. 
Whereas man has sought to rule over his own heart, now Jesus is going to come and he's going to set everything right where he will be struck and in so doing he will rule and he will reign as the rightful king in our hearts forever. Amen? So we see that there's something about this brook Kidron that we need to take notice of that is all a part of the plan of where Jesus is walking. But not only that, it's interesting to note that the Brook Kidron also would have been a place that flowed from the temple area. And, if it, and as it would flow from the temple area into the Kidron Valley, from the temple area, when they would have the sacrifices for all the animals, the blood in which the sacrifices were made had to flow somewhere, and often it would flow down the Brook Kidron. And so at this time of the year, when it is the Passover time, and there would have been literally thousands and thousands and thousands of animals that are being slain at this time of the year, the brook Kidron no doubt would have had blood within that brook or certainly along the wadi in that valley. So that as Jesus and the disciples are walking along the brook Kidron and moving toward the garden, he would have seen on the ground the blood of the sacrifices of the lambs that had been slain, knowing that he himself was the perfect sacrifice who was about to be slain for us and for our sin. Amen? See, there's nothing that should be thought about as just a coincidence. Every detail has been determined. And Jesus is walking along here along this brook Kidron. He is about to become the perfect sacrifice. And I cannot help but to think of what John the Baptist said in John chapter 1, verse 21, 29, when he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world as he looks toward Jesus. The details have been determined. The plan to save uh, is happening. We also see not only these talk about the brook Kidron, Kidron, but also that there was a garden there. Now, it's interesting that he would mention a garden, that they would go to a garden. But if you remember, a garden plays uh, an important role in all of history. Because at the very first, Adam began life in the garden, which is Eden. And Christ, the second Adam, came to the end of his physical life to a garden. In the garden of Eden, Adam sinned. In the garden of Gethsemane, the Savior is about to defeat sin. In the garden of Eden, the curse came upon the earth. But in Gethsemane, the curse was about to be overcome. In Eden, Adam fell. But in Gethsemane, Jesus is about to conquer. Amen? In Eden, disobedience first took place, which brought about death. But in this garden, perfect obedience is seen in Jesus, even to the point of his death. And so we see this garden here is in the passage of Scripture because the details have been determined. And it starts in a garden, and a garden is where the story is going to come to fruition. Amen. Y'all with me this morning? You see, there's every detail has been determined. But not only that, I love it about the brook Kidron. I love it about the garden. But I even love that the rooster crows in verse 27. Amen. Because Jesus had said to Peter that he was going to deny him three times before the rooster crows. And indeed, in verse 27, it says that Peter then denied him again. And immediately, what happened? A rooster crowed. So he who controls, listen, he who controls all of creation, you need to understand that he also controls the crowing of, an, of a rooster. Amen? See, every detail of this event has been determined and ordered by God. Everything is moving to a point. His plan is coming together. It's going to be beautiful, just like a glorious symphony. The plan to save is happening. As we think about, listen, beloved, as we think about these small details, you need to understand that he is a God who cares about the small details in life. So you need to know that God cares about the little details in your life as well. Amen? Amen. And so we see the details 
uh, have been determined. And then the second point that we see as we look at this passage of Scripture, as you see the Savior uh, in Christ, your salvation in Christ, we see secondly here the force to flatten. When we're thinking about who Jesus is and what's taking place here in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see the force, that he is the force to flatten. What are you talking about there? Well, I'm glad you asked because I want to tell you. You see, we see the ability, Jesus' ability to save is also evident. He has the ability to save because I'm here to tell you that this Jesus who's walking in the garden, who's about to be arrested, is none other than God himself. Amen? And he has the force to flatten. And we look in verses 4 through 6 and we read these words where it says, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, this detachment of troops and Judas, Whom are you seeking? And they answered him, saying, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. And now when he said to them, watch this, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. So all these troops, when Jesus says, I am he, they fall back and are flattened. Now, what's taking place there? Well, one of the things that I want you to recognize is Jesus is saying these words. Jesus, when he asks them who you're looking for, and they say Jesus of Nazareth, he answers them. And in my Bible, probably in yours as well, it says, I am he. And the he is in italics, meaning that in the Greek, he is not there. The word he is not there. So what Jesus literally says is they say, who you, as he says, who you're looking for, and they say Jesus of Nazareth, he says, I am. And then he says it again in verse 6. He said to them, I am. And then verse 8, I told you that I, am, that I am. And so what we see here is what Jesus is doing is he's using the name of God. It's very clear that Jesus is making a, a, a statement here that he still is God. And, if, and we get that from Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, where we see the name of God is I am. That passage says, and God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So what Jesus is doing here is he is showing that he is who he says he is. He is claiming deity for himself. As a matter of fact, we know in the Gospel of John that John has recorded where Jesus does that over and over again in this Gospel. You remember in John chapter 8 where Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Over and over, we see that he says he is something. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the door of the sheep. I am the true vine. I am the resurrection life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And here again, he says to them when they want to know, when he says, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus. And he says, I am. Something astonishing happens. These who are the troops, these who are the detachment of soldiers, they fall. And so they may, Jesus was outnumbered by a lot of people to himself. And yet when he speaks, they fall flat. That's pretty good, don't you think? Amen. Now in my mind, what does that look like? Well, I was trying to think about what that would look like. Jesus stepping up and, and speaking to the people. And Judas is there with those detachment of soldiers. And understand that a detachment of troops could have easily been a 1,000 people. That's what a detachment was. Plus, when you add the officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, it could have, anywhere, it could have easily been around a 1,000 people that Judas brings with him for, for, uh, to arrest Jesus. Now, I don't know that he really brought that many. Uh, it says a detachment, which is between 500 and 1,000. But even if it's not, even if it's 
50 to 100 people. That's still a lot of people that Judas is bringing, don't you say? Wouldn't you say that? And so Jesus, as he speaks, he says, I am, and they fall flat. In my mind, what is taking place, or you think about what took place about seven years ago, when we, in Lynchburg, we had this windstorm, a crazy weather phenomenon called a derecho, where this wind comes in. And I've got a picture here of, of, of that event that took place. It started in Chicago, and the wind and the rain, and it was just in waves that came across, so that it flattened out. This wind was so uh, strong that it flattened trees. I think it happened here in Richmond as well, uh, but certainly there in Lynchburg where power was out and things were laid flat by the storm. And what I see in my mind is that Jesus, who says, I am, he has the ability to lay people flat, just like that storm, amen? He has the ability to do that. It's a miracle here that takes place that we often overlook to remind us as to who Jesus is, that Jesus is completely in control of everything that's taking place here in the garden. Y'all with me this morning? Do you believe that today, that Jesus had everything under control? That he had the power to, as he speaks, I am, they fall flat. All of these soldiers, all of these uh, officers, all of these fall flat to the ground. But then we come down to verses 12 and 13, and we find here that as he's being arrested, the detachment of troops and the captain of the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him, and they led him away. Now, I find it's interesting that we just talked about how Jesus, who says that he is the great I am and able to do the saving here, and as he speaks, people fall. And now we see that the Jews arrested Jesus, the Jews bound Jesus, and the Jews led Jesus away. Beloved, I believe that the Jews didn't do anything that Jesus didn't let them do. Amen? Because the Bible tells us in Colossians chapter 1.17 that in him all things consist. That means that he holds the universe in place. So I'm here to tell you that the, that the officers and the Jews were not holding Jesus. He was in control of all things. Amen. He was holding it all together. And at any point he could have called a whole army of angels to come to his rescue. But he did not. That's not what he did. And so what we see is you see this story unfold. You see your salvation in Christ. You see the details have been determined. You see the, he has the force to flatten. And then also we see the wonder of the wind. The willingness to save is amazing. The wonder of the wind. Now what do you mean by that, Pastor? Well, let's look at a couple things. Let's look again at verse 1 and 2. It tells us Jesus spoke in these words. He went over the went out with his disciples. He went out with the disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place where Jesus often met them with his disciples. Now, it's interesting to me that Jesus went out to this garden, a garden that he knew that he had taken his disciples before, and it was a place that Judas also knew the place. So if Jesus was seeking to not be caught he could have gone to any other garden or any other place. It seems to me that Jesus went out of his way to be apprehended. In order to escape arrest, he could have gone anywhere other than a place where he regularly met with the disciples and a place that Judas knew about. But we see here that Jesus went out toward this garden. And then also we see not only that, but we see again verses 3 and 4. And Judas having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. 
Now, if it had been 50 people or 100 people or 500 or, or 1,000 people, whatever the case may be, on a moonlit night, because it's a full moon being the Passover, lanterns and torches and weapons, they're going to be seen coming, wouldn't you say? They're coming in the middle of the night with their lanterns, their torches, and their weapons, and they're going to be clanging along, and they're going to be coming. And Jesus, nowhere does it show us that he said, hey, guys, they're on the way. Let's get out of here. No, as a matter of fact, what we see again in verse 4. Now watch this. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward. Beloved, that's what I call the wonder of the went. Jesus knew everything that was about to take place, and he went forward. Amen? You see that? He went forward. He was willing. He went willingly. He openly identified himself before them that he is who they're looking for. And so we have to ask why. Why did Jesus do this? We see it in verse 11 where he says that he would drink the cup. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? And in verse 37 where he says, for this cause I was born and for this cause I come. Jesus knew what lay ahead of him. And he went forward. He knew what was going to take place in the cross of Calvary. And he went forward. He knew what was going to happen with his beating and mocking and spitting on him. And he went forward. Amen? You see, it's the wonder of the went. Why? Because the Bible tells us, as Jesus said in John chapter 3, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Jesus came for our salvation, and so he went forward knowing the things that would take place. It's the wonder of the wind. He willingly went to the cross. He allowed all of this to take place like a lamb to the slaughter. Matter of fact, in Isaiah 53, 7, that's what it tells us as it prophesies about who he is, that he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Oh, beloved, oh, what a Savior. Amen? Do we see our Savior, our salvation in Christ? Indeed we do. So let us turn our eyes toward Jesus and see what is taking place for our salvation that the plan to save is happening and the details have been determined, that the ability to save is evident and he has the force to flatten, and the willingness to save is amazing as we see the wonder of the wind. And so as we look at this passage of Scripture, there's a lot of things that are taking place here as Jesus is arrested, taken to the high priest, taken before Pilate, and taken uh, in the place of others. And we see, as we look at this, then we have to also step back and say, okay, where do I fit in this picture? And so secondly, not only do you see your salvation in Christ, but beloved, I want to encourage you to somehow, someway, see yourself in the crowd today. Will you see yourself in the crowd of what's taking place in this narrative, in this story? And will you see yourself in a couple of different places? We need to be honest with ourselves and see if we do see ourselves in these areas. In the first place would be in the area of betrayal. In betrayal. One of the commentators that I was reading this week, he said this word about the word betrayal. He said, there is a word in the English language that drips with pain. 
and that word is betrayal. And if you've ever been betrayed, you know how true that is. Amen? That it is a painful thing to have to deal with is when someone that you have been with and close to betrays you. And what we know of the story is that both Peter and Judas have betrayed Jesus Christ. Now, as you, can't you find it interesting or don't you find it interesting that when Paul gives the words of instituting the Lord's Supper, that he doesn't speak of the night in which the Lord broke bread with the disciples as the night in which he was arrested or the night of the trial, but rather he says in the same night in which he was betrayed. Because it was a painful event that took place as Jesus was betrayed. And Judas betrayed the Lord, bringing troops to the arrest and betrays Jesus with a kiss. And Peter said to the Lord, Lord, I'm going to be with you to the very end. No matter what happens, I'm going to be there for you. I will go to the end with you. And yet in one of the other Gospels, we find that Peter is asleep in the garden. And then we find him denying him three times and then the rooster crows. It was painful for the Lord to deal with the betrayal, even knowing what is going to take place. But as we think about the betrayal of Peter and Judas, we have to ask ourselves, okay, I wonder, do we also betray the Lord? Oh, do we also find ourselves here in the crowd as people who betray him? Do you see yourself in the crowd as a betrayer of Christ? Because Judas, listen, Judas betrayed the Lord with a kiss. And Peter betrayed the Lord with a curse. But we often betray the Lord with our commitment. Because what happens is, in Titus chapter 1, verse 16, it tells us this. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. There are times when we, as believers in Jesus Christ, profess to know God, but in our works we deny him. We're not living out our faith. We're not living out our commitment to Christ, being abominable, disobedient to what he has called us and wants us to do and being disqualified for every good work. We profess to know God, but in works we deny him. That's betraying the Lord with our commitment. And so that means we fail the Lord when we're not committed. When we say that we belong to him, but we deny him in the practice and how we live our lives. If we come to church, boy, we sing the songs and we say, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus, but then we go out into the world and we live any old way that we want to and never acknowledge Christ as the Lord and Savior of our life. Beloved, that is betraying Jesus Christ and our commitment to him. When we don't spend time with him, when we are afraid to tell others about him, we are betraying our commitment to him. When we place other things, including our comfort or even our money, over him, before him, we are betraying him with our commitment because we have no commitment to him. So do you see yourself in the crowd like Peter or Judas who betrays him? So betrayal is one of those ways in which we can see ourselves in the crowd. And then there's a second way, being bogus. Being bogus. You know what I'm talking about? Well, let me help you with that, all right? When we look at the Jews in this passage of Scripture, the Jewish leaders were being bogus. In verses 28 to 30, let me explain what I mean here. They have arrested Jesus. Jesus has gone before the high priest, and now they're sending him to Pilate's court. And it says in verse 28, Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium, and it was early morning. But they themselves did not go into the praetorium. Watch this. They themselves, the Jewish leaders, did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled but that they might eat the Passover. 
Pilate then went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered and said to him, If he were not an evildoer, he would not have, we would not have delivered him up to you. I mean, it's interesting here. The Jewish leaders here are careful not to step into the praetorium lest they be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Let me explain what that means. The Passover feast lasted seven days. And in order to participate in the entire feast, the priests and the officials had to maintain complete cleanliness from all forms of defilement. So that meant that they, meant that they needed to stay away from all Gentile dwellings or they would be defiled. And so they were very careful not to step foot into Pilate's dwelling, but yet they would take innocent Jesus and bring false witnesses against him and lie about who he was. You see, these people were hypocrites. They were being bogus. They were careful, listen, they were careful to pay attention to the minute details of their religion while their hearts were far from God. Y'all with me this morning? I mean, that's what was going on in their lives. They were far from him. They were not near the Lord. Their relationship with God, listen, their relationship with God was bogus. Jesus spoke of these kinds of people in Matthew 15, 8, where he says, These people draw near to me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Beloved, the Lord knows our hearts, amen, and he knows when we're being bogus. And so I wonder if we fit in that crowd just like the Jewish leaders, no better than them, but we're just being bogus. Boy, we can really talk a good talk, but when it comes to walking the walk, we just are not there. So we see there that if that's us, then, beloved, our life may look a lot like religion, but there's no resemblance to Jesus. If that's the case, we need to seek his face and repent of our sin and place him first in our life and depend upon him. So we see in the crowd here this betrayal of Peter and Judas. Maybe we're there, but we betray the Lord with our commitment. Or maybe it's being bogus where we claim to be a follower of the Lord, but in reality there's no relationship at all like the Jewish leaders. And then there's a third way in the crowd, and that's the buck passer. You know what a buck passer is? The person who passes the buck. As we look at Pilate, Pilate here is the buck passer. Because Pilate didn't want to make a decision about Jesus. Pilate, the, the Roman governor over that area, didn't want to make a decision about Jesus. He was not in good graces with the Jews or the Roman government. And his wife even had a dream about this Jesus. And so in Luke 23, we find that he sends Jesus to Herod, who then sent Jesus back to Pilate. And then here in verse 31, Pilate still doesn't want to make a decision. And he says, you take him, speaking to the Jewish leaders, you take him and you judge him according to your law. Because what Pilate wanted to do is he just wanted to pass the buck. He wanted to let the crowd choose. And beloved, maybe that's you here today where you haven't made a decision about Jesus Christ. And so you're just passing the buck. I don't want to think about that anymore. Let somebody else deal with that. I don't want to have to deal with that. But beloved, in that you're not wanting to make a decision. You need to understand this, that in your decision, in your indecision, that is your decision. Because when we are indecisive about, about Christ, that means that we are rejecting him as the Savior of the world. So where do you fit? Where do you fit in this story? Are you one who betrays Christ in your commitment? Are you one who's being bogus, who says you're a follower of Christ, but in reality you're not? Or are you just passing the buck and you, don't, you just want other people to deal with it? Or maybe it's the fourth place in the crowd where you fit. And that's in the life of Barabbas. As we think about the life of Barabbas, actually, I think that you're just like Barabbas, and I'm just like Barabbas. You mean to tell me, Pastor, that I'm just like Barabbas? I said, no, not just you. Every one of us are like Barabbas. 
So what do you mean by that? Well, when we look at this passage of Scripture, verse 39 and 40, we see the sort of what's happening with Barabbas. It says, Pilate says, you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they all cried again, saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. And this is what you need to know, what we need to remember about Barabbas as we think about this story as it unfolds, is that Barabbas was a thief. Barabbas was a robber. Barabbas had rebelled against the authorities. And Barabbas is already in jail for his crimes. The chains are already on him, and all he's waiting for are the consequences to his wrongdoing. And beloved, understand this, that this is exactly who we are or who we were before Jesus Christ. That we are all guilty. Guilty of our own rebellion. Guilty of our own disobedience. Guilty of our own wrongdoing. Guilty of our own sin, our own unrighteousness, our own wickedness. You say, well, I don't know about me. I, I don't know about you, Pastor, but I'm not like that. Well, in James chapter 2, verse, t- verse 10, it says, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. So, beloved, if you have been perfect your whole life, but then you tell one little white lie, the Bible says that you are guilty of the whole thing. You've broken the law. And the guilt of our sin weighs upon us, and the penalty is there. The consequences is that we deserve death because of our sin. No matter how small you may think it is, the consequences for our sin is death. And so we are all like Barabbas, that we are all guilty, waiting for the penalty, which is death for all of eternity. We are all, have been, or we are presently, Barabbas's. Can I get a witness? Amen. Y'all with me? As we think about this story, Barabbas was likely in prison not far from where Pilate and the crowds were gathered. And I read something this week. I wish I could tell you that this came from me, but it actually came from a commentator, but it's so good I got to share it with you, all right? Is that Barabbas was likely in prison not far from where Pilate and the crowds were gathered. And so as Barabbas is in his jail, in his prison, in his cell, wherever he is, and he is, has his window open. He can hear out what's happening out in the courtyard. He could easily hear the crowd, but he could not understand what Pilate would be saying from where he was, according to what we understand archaeologically as to where he was, would have been in prison. And so Matthew 27 gives us more of a back and forth. And I'm not going to read that chapter, but if you were looking at Matthew 27, you would see the back and forth between Pilate and the crowd. And here's what, how this would go. As, the, as Pilate would say, to the crowd of people as he brings Jesus out. He would say, which of the two do you want me to release? And the crowd would say, Barabbas. And Pilate then will say this, what shall I do with Jesus? And the crowd yells out, crucify him. And then Pilate says again, why? What crime has he committed? And the crowd says even more loudly, crucify him, crucify him. And then Pilate would wash, would go over, as you know, take a pan of water and wash his hands, and he would say to the crowd, I am innocent of this man's blood. It's your responsibility. And then the crowd would cry out, let his blood be on us and on our children. So if you're Barabbas and you can't hear what Pilate is saying, but you can only hear what the crowd is saying, what did Barabbas hear? He heard this. He heard, Barabbas, crucify him, crucify him. Let his blood be on us and on our children. 
Now, if you were Barabbas and you were in the prison cell, you'd have to feel a little bit faint right about now, don't you think? Out of what you had just heard. He doesn't know what's taking place out in the courtyard. He doesn't know that Jesus is there with Pilate. He just only hears Barabbas crucify him and let his blood be on us and our children. And so as a hardened criminal, you have to imagine, he has certainly seen crucifixions take place and he has to look down at his hands and think to himself that these are the places where the nails are going to go when they're going to crucify me. And the horror of what is about to take place in his life has to be intensified. Even though he's a hardened criminal, he knows that agony is going to await him because he has seen the terror and the awfulness of what crucifixion looks like, and he knows that the crowd has just called out for him to be crucified. And sometime later, as he's been mulling this over in his mind, knowing that this death penalty is upon him, that he's to be crucified, he hears a rattling at the door where he is of his cell. And there's the officers there with the lock, and he's thinking to himself, this is it. And he hears the key go into the door cell, and the door opens. And the guards come in, and they take Barabbas, and they walk him out of his cell into the courtyard, and then they take the chains off of his arms. And suddenly the reality begins to hit him that he is not going to be crucified, but instead he has been made free. And the reason why he has been made free is because another man has taken his place to be crucified in his stead, and his name is Jesus. Amen. Beloved, we are all Barabbas. Amen? That's who we are. And that's what Jesus has done for you, and that's what he's done for me. Do you trust him as the Lord and Savior of your life? Do you know him as your salvation? So what are we supposed to do with that? Well, there's one to do, just one. Be in awe. Be in awe of a Savior who would do this for you. Amen? And if you don't know this Savior, if you don't know Jesus Christ, then repent today and turn to him, believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who died for you on the cross, who rose again bodily from the grave, and profess him as the Lord and Savior of life, trusting him by faith. Be in awe of who he is. And beloved, listen now, if you already know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life, and you already have trusted him, and he is the Savior and, and your Redeemer of your life, then as we think about what Jesus has done for us, as we remember uh, the cost that they took, even for Barabbas, and for us and remembering all the details that were in place and he knew all these things and yet he went forward for us we think about him being God but yet being led away we are in awe of him and so as believers it should cause us to be in awe and to bow and to worship before him amen, amen. to remember who he is and what he has done for us and as we bow and worship him then to yield ourselves completely to him and surrender our lives to him, whatever that looks like, wherever that takes us, and obey him completely, being committed to him absolutely. Live the life of being a follower of Jesus as we're in awe, seeing ourselves in the crowd, but seeing our salvation in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you'd be with us as we come to this moment of invitation. 
Lord, that we would yield our hearts and our lives to you in complete surrender. Lord, that we would remember afresh and anew with great reverence, bowing before you, thanking you with gratitude that you went forward for us. Lord, may you change us and challenge us and help us to live this life out of being your faithful servants day after day after day because of your grace that is sufficient how you went to the cross for us. And so, Lord, now may we come to this invitation in awe of you. If there are those who need to make decisions of commitment to say, I want Jesus to be the Lord of my life, may this be that moment where they'll come and take one of these pastors by the hand and say, I need Jesus to be my Savior. And they'll be glad to pray with them. Or maybe there are folks here today who just need to say, I need to recommit my life to the Lord. When I look at the life of Peter and Judas, I realize that I'm just as guilty as betraying my Lord. I'm not committed to Him. I'm being bogus in my walk. I just want to pass the buck. I don't want to deal with it. So Lord, may you convict all of our hearts and help us to live a life that's worthy of, of what you have done for us. And God, may you help us to be faithful, to be committed, to be real, to have this relationship with you. So, Lord, help us to come to this altar and pray, asking for you to have your way in our hearts and lives or asking the pastor to pray with them or recommitting our hearts and lives, surrendering afresh and new. Or maybe they're those that you're calling onto the mission field and they know that you've been calling them to ministry or to mission field and they've pushed back because it's not comfortable, it's not the time. But you, they know that you're calling. So, Lord, I pray that they would surrender to you afresh and new today because of who you are and because of what you've done. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're going to stand.